Hello friend, welcome back to Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel. I am your host, Neil Helligers. So nice to be back with you for episode seven of Ninth Step Murders, which as promised is right here. Also right here is this word from our sponsor. Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So before we get to episode seven, there's one last bit I want to highlight about episode six that was basically my favorite. And it falls under the category of things that happen unexpectedly, but I love the way it was executed. So it starts with Emma fearing that there was an international incident about the start between the dynamics of, uh, of the Chinese, the Americans, the Japanese, and the Japanese resistance living in the China section of Tokyo. Um, and then we went all the way from there to the reveal that this was uh, entirely an op done by Lieutenant Colonel Ting, the chief liaison officer to the Japanese government for the People's Republic of China, and his daughter, Annie, uh, with her complete consent and encouragement and her ideas. So instead of sparking an international incident, it kind of settles unresolved into this gray area where he needed a new leg, but he, he needed to do it in such a way in order to not lose power, as, as, as we've already said is most important to him. So his daughter was never in actual peril. It's a misappropriation of resources to be sure, however, but the gotcha, and I, I think I'm interpreting this correctly, when Emma's like, well, I'd like to know what you traded to the syndicate in order for, you know, for your, for your new leg. And Ting just says, the Americans don't need to worry, Lieutenant, you all have more than enough guns of your own, which I think, if I'm understanding that correctly, Ting is saying what he exchanged were American guns. So I love how this uh, one particular reveal um, takes the entire storyline back into the main storyline of the entire season, which is what's happening with the smuggling across international borders. Anyway, let's see how this all feeds into episode seven of Nine Step Murders coming at you right about uh, now. Enjoy. The news drone hovered in the purple shadows between two emptying diet office buildings, waiting for a shot. Black umbrellas mingled with animatronic hover covers, blocking the drone's line of sight. One drop of rain hit its dark carapace. Then another. The drone continued to wait. By the time the downpour truly started, most of the members of the House of Counselors had exited their annex offices, heading for Nagatacho Station, or the dark-windowed private half-cars waiting out front to take the more senior counselors home. During a break in the rain, the wind picked up and the drone spun slowly, 
water droplets spraying off its back. Its cameras caught the swing of one door at the committee room annex across the road. The news drone moved slowly in that direction, holding tight to the turbulent and shadowed air. Tokyo Councilwoman Nakagawa Misato, her dark suit, high collar, sensible pumps, and crisply pulled back hair berettet at the nape of her neck, all speaking to her well-known personal motto of self-control under pressure, struggled with her own dark umbrella as she emerged from the committee room. Behind the junior member of the Minshinto, a wave of insults pelted the evening. The drone logged two familiar faces, members of the Nippon Saisei party. As it was programmed to do, it generated an instant graph of the video-captured counselor's recent voting records to send back to the news desk. Nothing unusual. Today, Asahi Miyake was notable for his vociferous disavowal of the ongoing Gaikanzai debate. His closest ally, Maroshinobe, was no less fierce. Both were now shouting at Nakagawa, calling her weak and telling her to go back to the kitchen. Nakagawa, known for her own fiery retorts, gave up on the umbrella and whirled around to face her opponents. The rain started anew, and the drone filmed the wind pulling her hair loose from her barrette, the fierce set of her chin, the force of her intense glare. The councilwoman did not appreciate these men at all. The drone logged her statistics, flagging the oft-repeated point that she had aspirations to higher office. If you think that allowing China to manipulate our currency as it is already doing is not foreign mischief, and unworthy of punishment as such, counselors, you have already chosen sides. You'd best join your allies to the West before the vote is final. Nakagawa paused to see her shot land, then turned on her heel, glancing just once in the direction of the drone, as if she knew it would be there. Then, with perfect precision, and without any trouble, she unfurled the umbrella and crossed the street to the train station, disappearing within. While her adversaries were still searching angrily for a reply, the councilwoman calmly headed for home. The news drone clicked and whirred, its algorithms already processing the needed percentages to flag its home news desk that trouble was once again brewing in the diet. The drone software highlighted two upcoming votes, several days away, both on foreign mischief. One dealt specifically with currency abuses. The drone noted that Nakagawa had co-drafted the eventual resolution. And now Shinobe and Miyake were organizing the opposition vote. The drone captured the counselor's outraged and reddened faces, pausing for a moment on each as the rain came down harder. I'd like to have her murdered on the floor of the diet, Shinobe muttered behind his hand, but the drone picked up his voice. I'd help you hide the body, Miyake whispered. Buffeted by the wind, the news drone packaged the file footage, flew the two dozen meters to Nagatacho Station, and used Tokyo Metro Wi-Fi to send its footage and graphs via Whisperlink security to its studio. Time stamped, 8.30 p.m. 
Act 1. At 3.30 the next morning, Inspector Corrida's sleeve rang, jarring her awake. She stared at her dark ceiling for a moment before groaning a what now to her sleeve's personal assistant. Station dispatch, Corrida-san, came the perfectly soft, half-left reply. Miyako was already scanning the news channels reflexively. Perhaps she could find the disturbance before dispatch told her what had happened. But there was nothing on the news wires. On her data sleeve, the third shift dispatcher remained silent, waiting for Miyako to acknowledge them. Well? They must be young, Miyako thought. There's a fire in Iria, the dispatcher finally said. Arson suspected. Please proceed with all haste to the logged location. Miyako blinked. Up near Ueno Park. That was far. The icon on Miyako's sleeve pulsed with each word. A glyph of Ninth Step Station. Her home base. No personalization. The dispatcher hadn't even been working with them long enough to make themselves an avatar. Perhaps you've called the wrong inspector, Miyako groaned. New dispatchers sometimes made such mistakes. But it was never too early to be a patient guide. You want the fire department liaison, she said, rubbing her scalp with her fingers. The dispatcher paused. Regrets for waking you, Koreda-san. Miyako waited for dispatch to swallow their error and hang up. Her training mandated she must not hang up first. Not with dispatch. But dispatch didn't end the call. They spoke again. The fire is at a house member's apartment. You have been called because the incident may be political. Your partner, Lieutenant Higashi Emma, has also been notified. Okay. Miyako was out of bed already slipping into her uniform and pulling her hair back. No time for tea. She found a snack bar in the pocket of her all-weather reflective jacket and sped out the door, still speaking to the dispatcher. Tell me exactly where to go. Musashino, the dispatcher said. A car is waiting outside already. Then they disconnected the call. Miyako slipped into the half-car and buckled in as it made a U-turn to pick up Emma twelve blocks away. Emma must have been waiting for several minutes, between the call and the drive, Miyako thought. But even as she settled into the seat, she was still pulling her hair into tidiness, and her shirt's sleeve was unbuttoned. She'd had time. Why didn't she sort herself out properly? Miyako looked away quickly at first. But when Emma didn't fix her sleeve, despite several long looks from her partner, Miyako tapped a finger on the fabric. Emma fixed it just in time for arrival in front of the Musashino apartment building. A fourth floor window belched thick smoke into the rain. The combination made the night air feel like wet cement. Miyako shuddered and pushed memories of the war away but she couldn't get the taste out of her throat without coughing loudly, which she refused to do. Not on a crime scene. 
Apartment residents were streaming out of the main glass doors. Those already outside were huddling, wrapped in blankets, looking up. Several were shaking and coughing. Is it another battle? Asked a small child, eyes searching the sky. Hush, a nearby mother said. A few meters from Emma, and somewhat apart from the rest of the crowd, stood a distraught man, tears running down his face. He also looked up at the window, gesturing with his free hand, murmuring what sounded like apologies and pleas. The man held a young boy in the crook of his left arm. The child was dressed in dark lizard versus robot pajamas, with one of the feet torn away. The toddler's hand curled around a small plastic toy, and he buried his head in the man's shoulder. But as Miyako watched, the boy turned his eyes toward her and Emma. Wide, trusting eyes. The fire squad leader gestured Miyako and Emma over. This is Councilwoman Nakagawa's husband. Miyako looked at the squad leader. Under her breath, and out of the hearing of the child, she whispered, Where is the councilwoman? The fire squad leader glanced up at the window and then back down too quickly. He frowned. Emma bowed her head. But before she could offer any consoling words, the child began to cry and speak. His pajamas were dark from ash, and he coughed as he formed his words around his still soft palate. But he looked at Miyako with intensity, as if he were telling the police inspector a story. There was a loud crash. The father put his hand on the child's cheek. Shh. Please let him talk, Emma said. The father nodded to the boy and the boy continued. Something came in through the window. Loud. It was so bright. That's enough, Haruto, the man said gently. Then he turned to the officers, his own cheeks shiny with tears. I couldn't get her out in time, he whispered to Miyako. Miyako watched both the father's and the little boy's eyes fill with grief. Accident or arson? Superintendent Nishimura asked brusquely as soon as Emma and Miyako returned. He'd been pulled from bed, too, although by now it was nearly time to begin the day. Well. They hadn't even taken their jackets off. Emma shook her head, spraying rain in a small radius. Nishimura, impatient, spoke again. If it's arson, we'll get gang crimes involved. If it's an accident, we'll kick it back to fire. Either way, tell me what kind of case it is. Definitely not an accident, Emma said, remembering Nishimura's frustration with the kidnapping case being assigned out of his control. She thought about staying quiet, but something nagged at Emma's memory. The child said something came in through the window, and the councilwoman's apartment is on the fourth floor. What does that matter? Nishimura asked. Do the Americans want it? If not, I need to decide which department gets this case. Miyako looked at her partner for a long moment, then closed her eyes. Drone flight plans for last night should tell us more. Unless it's military. 
Her wet coat dripped small puddles onto the station floor from her sleeves. Emma could see Nishimura's growing annoyance at the disorder. Someone would need to clean that up before anyone slipped. Miyako looked too tired to notice. Something about the case, the smell of the air, the distraught little boy, had rattled Emma's partner. Emma picked up Miyako's argument. If someone drove a military drone through a councilwoman's window, we need to find out fast. There are several key votes coming up in the diet that impact the peace. But this is fairly far from the Chinese zone, and there's no evidence of their involvement. If it's a domestic matter, it falls under Tokyo's purview, not that of the peacekeepers. Miyako startled at the emphasis in her partner's voice, then gazed at her boss. Her eyebrow arched in a small question that Emma could now interpret with 90% accuracy. Would the point strike home? Emma had glimpsed the child's face when he had looked at Miyako. She had seen how trusting the boy had been, and how Miyako had whispered to Haruto that she would get to the bottom of the problem, that she would find who had taken his mother away. She'd promised, and the boy had relaxed. After the previous case, Emma wasn't sure she wanted another incident involving a child. But Nishimura liked to assign key cases based on seniority to whoever stood the best chance at a promotion or an award when the case was complete. That's not Miyako, Emma thought. Not at this point in time. And yet they were best equipped to deal with the case and help the young boy, as well as Japan's primary political organization. That would be helpful for Emma's career, as well as Miyako's. Sir, she added, it may be outside peacekeeper purview, but that doesn't mean peacekeeper data and understanding can't benefit us as we solve the case. Nishimura acknowledged her interest with a nod, and Miyako's, with the briefest of grunts, but then he grumbled. You're still wrapping up the kidnapping case paperwork. Are you sure you should take another case on? Emma watched as her temporary boss turned back to the active case information board and began flagging files with Yamada's name. He was preparing to turn the case over to the major crimes desk. Yamada, Emma remembered from after-hours bar gossip, was in line for a promotion. Perhaps this wasn't a good fight to get into. But as Emma prepared to step away, she could not forget the look in the child's dark eyes as he cried for his mother from the safety of his father's arms. Miyako had gone even quieter and stood with a resigned posture. But Emma couldn't let this case go. We spoke to the family first, she said quietly mimicking Miyako's posture, but not her acquiescence. We should be kept on the case. Nishimura frowned. He gestured at the file folders that already said Yamada. This is a drone-involved case, Emma added. I know more about drones than anyone here. She didn't mention the other reason this case worried her. If her hunch was right... And the drone was military, or worse, police. The killing would be no accident. 
It would be an international incident. Or treason. Or both. She would have to check with Yardley, her boss on the American side, and see what he knew. My sleeve went off, Yamada said, coming to stand in front of the leaderboard, looking fresh and wide awake. It was nearly eight in the morning. But Dispatch wasn't sure if you had a case for me. His eyebrows rose as if he saw something that interested him. Emma looked at the floor, at the information board, anywhere but at Nishimura. False alarm, Nishimura said, and Emma relaxed, until their boss added, These two grabbed it first. You'd better brace for media attention, Yamada said as he walked off quickly. Emma caught the look in the older man's eyes, a mix of frustration and relief. This one's already hit the wires. Hello, friend. This is Neil Helligers, host of Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit more about the Greenlight app. And this message is, of course, sponsored by Greenlight, but I was using, our family was using the Greenlight app uh, even before the first ad in a wonderful, thrilling, cosmic coincidence, right? See what I did there? So again, to catch you up, Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. Basically, the way it works is that parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their kids' spending and saving. And you can see exactly how much money they have in their account, and there's different ways to give them money. What we've been doing is on a, like a weekly allowance, a certain amount that goes into his account every week. So in order to further the conversation about money and about earning, uh, we're using Greenlight as a kind of a foundation for that conversation. Uh, in other words, instead of just the allowance he gets for a certain base things that he's expected to do around the house, uh, we are also adding the chore feature, which is certain one-time payments for certain one-time jobs. For example, in our house, we're trying to encourage our son to start walking the dog more. He's old enough for it, he's responsible enough for it, and he's done it enough that he knows what to do. So he can really see that for all those extra times that he steps up and does the dog walk, he gets rewarded for that job well done. And this is the conversation. In life, when you work a little extra harder, you get a little extra compensation and you can either save that up or spend it how you like. And we're not alone in this. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's a very easy and very convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate life together. So sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash adrenaline. That's greenlight.com slash adrenaline to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash adrenaline slash 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 slash. So thrilling, right? Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Miyako tapped her sleeve and called up the footage from the Diet's Annex. 
We must ask Counselor Shinobe to come for tea this morning, she said as she watched his final comment being played on repeat in the news. Already on it, Emma said. No one's seen him this morning, but I have a car going to his apartment. You want the case, you get to deal with public relations, Nishimura said. As a young man, his hair as shimmery as Kensuke's, his shoes shined to a polish that rivaled Yamada's, entered the squad room and barreled straight for Nishimura. Their boss gestured to them. Kikuchi Hiro, lead public relations liaison. Meet Lieutenant Higashi Emma, seconded from the U.S. peacekeeping force and a drone expert. And of course, you know Inspector Koreda Miyako. Ohayo gozaimasu, Lieutenant Higashi, Inspector Koreda. Ohayo, the partners replied, nearly together. Tell me what happened, Lieutenant. Were drones involved? What can I tell the press? Miyako's shoulders ached. Emma's drone expertise did come in handy, but the way she'd gathered the case back into her purview made it seem like a peacekeeper issue. And now she had the liaison's full attention. Miyako wasn't about to let the little boy's loss be forgotten, nor Nakagawa's contributions. Someone seems to have murdered a rising political star and young mother, she said before Emma could answer. We filed a request for drone flights, but there is much more here, including what is all over the news about what was said at the diet after hours. To Miyako's relief, Emma merely nodded, but didn't embellish or adjust her statement. She gestured to her partner to continue. Miyako realized she didn't have much else to tell the eager liaison. I need something to give to the press. He sighed gently. They will make their own stories if we don't give them one. Miyako understood, but couldn't help much. Not yet. Until the councilmen overheard by the press are located, and the drone footage is analyzed, we have few other leads. In the United States, when a woman is killed, we might look closer to home, Emma said. But this has so many political angles, we cannot ignore those. As she spoke, the liaison's brow furrowed. Miyako coughed. Emma was confusing the liaison, making things more difficult. Why interrogate a victim's family, especially during a time of grief? The liaison asked. This time, it was Emma's turn to look confused. Miyako jumped in. Now that the fire has been mostly put out, we can return to the apartment and question the neighbors to find out what they heard and saw. We'll tell you more when we have it. The press liaison nodded gratefully and went back downstairs to his bureau office, the waiting reporters, and the drone recorders. Miyako didn't even have to put on her jacket in order to leave the station. It was still on, dried in the warmth of the office's kerosene heaters. Emma followed her partner down the stairs, heading for the doors, to the squad car Nishimura had earmarked for them until the case was resolved. Let us know the minute counselors Shinobe and Miyake are found and brought in. Miyako called as she went down the stairs. We'll let you know, Nishimura said from the top of the stairs. Perhaps Yamada should handle the investigation, Emma murmured. She hadn't meant for Nishimura to hear, but winced when she heard the chief clear his throat. Perhaps, 
Nishimura agreed. Unless we want to keep up good relations with the diet. Sharp ears, Emma said as she climbed into the car. Always has had, Miyako said. Could have warned me. I figured you'd find out. Miyako kept her eyes on the road as the car steered itself toward Musashino. It was closer to lunchtime than breakfast when she and Emma arrived at the councilwoman's apartment. Inspector Sato stood in the smoke-stained fourth-floor hallway, supervising his assistants, who were sealing the apartment with digital police stamps over top of the fire squad's original seal. No civilians could enter without an escort now. The councilwoman's remains have been removed already, he said to Miyako. I've gotten all I could. Arson is likely, but there are a few strange things. He puffed out his cheeks. I need to clear up two questions about the window and the remains, and I will message you the moment I know more. Emma's sleeve pulsed. A dancing head appeared over her sleeve. Miyako craned her neck to see that it was Nishimura's face. I don't think that's a standard issue gift pack, she whispered before Emma accepted the call. The drone report came back, Nishimura said, gruff enough that even standing to the side, Miyako understood it was bad before he said anything more. Here, let me show you the nearest drones to the building. A display grid glowed on Emma's sleeve, showing a holographic layout of the apartment and its surroundings, with drone traces in white. From where Miyako was standing, the whole thing looked like a series of blue waves tied up with string. She tried to get a better angle, and instead spotted an older woman lingering just outside the wider ring of crime scene tape. The woman had short salt and pepper hair, and her shoulders were rounded with age. She held a rag in one hand, a bucket of soapy water in the other. Slowly, she scrubbed at the soot on her apartment door. Her dark pants and deep blue housecoat were stained with grime, and she had her head cocked as if she was more interested in listening to the police inspectors than in cleaning the apartment's doorway. The woman startled as she realized she'd caught Miyako's eye. She opened her door and slipped inside, shutting it as quietly as possible. Miyako took the few steps from the counselor's door to the older woman's. She knocked. Konnichiwa. The woman's voice came through the door, but she didn't open it. I have a cold. Can't talk to you face to face. Fine. Miyako leaned against the very clean door frame. Did you know the councilwoman? Oh, yes. She was so nice. It's such a shame, the neighbor said. She was a good daughter-in-law. Your son is the councilwoman's husband? Silence from the other side of the door. Then... Was. Yes. If you can tell us anything to help the case, please message me, Miyako said. I'll share my contact information if you'll open the door. Inwardly, she kicked herself. In the confusion of the early morning wake-up, she had forgotten to bring business cards that could be slid over the threshold beneath the door. There was a pause. 
Down the hall, Emma continued to talk with Nishimura and a data miner who had joined him. Then the mother-in-law's door cracked open, and the woman poked her sleeve out, wrist up. Miyako briefly touched sleeves, passing the woman her contact information. Please call. For anything. I will, the older woman replied, and then pushed the door shut. Standing in the hallway outside the smoke-darkened apartment, Emma searched through the drone path information that the data miner had mapped. I'm not seeing anything at either the right height or the right trajectory, she said. I didn't either, said the data miner. Her voice was quiet but strong. That doesn't mean it's not there. We can't image the tiny drones, and a swarm still looks like a flock of birds. But to Emma's enhanced eye, the airspace was just as clear around the apartment as it seemed to the data miner. Drones passed it throughout the night, but did not approach. It must be cloaked, she finally said. But U.S.? Japan? Or someone else's? If this is about politics, we need to know who her enemies were. And her parties. And we need to get both Councilman Shinobe and Miyake to the station. The Diet has announced that there will be a public memorial for the Councilwoman, Nishimura said from Emma's sleeve. If they don't attend, it will be highly suspicious, Emma said. She watched Miyako approach a neighbor who was cleaning her door. The neighbor suddenly went inside, leaving Miyako outside. Her partner stubbornly put a palm against the door and kept speaking. Emma wouldn't give up either. She'd fought to keep this case, and the number of dead ends they were hitting early wasn't going to deter them. She tapped her sleeve in frustration, cycling through contact chibis until Charles's familiar American flag came up. Charles didn't pick up on the first prompt. Call me if you know anything about the councilwoman, Emma whispered. Miyako was too busy talking to the door to notice. A few moments later, Charles's voice was in her earbud, on Emma's only remaining peacekeeper channel. What are you seeing? Was it murder? I don't think so, but Sato's report isn't final yet, she said. I don't know if it was an in-country hit or a foreign one. What are you hearing? Charles exhaled slowly. A few things. The councilwoman was widely disliked. That could be purely because she was female on the floor of the diet, Emma said. She'd seen the newsreels. Everyone had. I'd like access to the peacekeeper data, she finally subvocalized, then closed her eyes waiting. You think all our data is now available to the Tokyo police? At your convenience? For this case, it's not just convenient. It's required. I want to help Tokyo and keep the peace. This seems like the best way to do it. So, does anyone have a whereabouts on the councilman? Do you know of any foreign influence? Bad actors in the police department, Charles had told her. Could he tell her anything more now? What about in the diet? Nothing. And Emma, I should tell you that there's discussion of recalling you. There have been some rumbles from the Tokyo police about your pushing yourself on cases. Nishimura? 
No. Other contacts. Someone else, then. Not Kensuke. Or... No. Yamada. Emma's eyes narrowed. I'm staying. Something is wrong at the precinct, Charles. You were right. But I think there's something wrong in the diet, too. The way the counselors were speaking. The tension around the foreign mischief bill. I'm close enough to ground that I can best help where I am. There's such a thing as too close, Emma. That's not your task. Am I too close? Emma wondered. She'd moved out of the U.S. peacekeeper's quarters, yes, into her own apartment, and she'd seen much more of local Tokyo than she'd planned. But she was still Emma Higashi, lieutenant seconded to Ninth Step Station, not a full inspector like Miyako. She would always be a little bit of an outsider. Tokyo didn't have the tech or the intel that she had as part of the peacekeeping force. The precinct didn't have the access. But what it did have was camaraderie. A sense of belonging. Even with Nishimura's gruffness. Emma snapped her attention back to the matter at hand. Charles, focus. I need you to give me the secure drone flight logs. A flicker across her sleeve and the flight logs displayed next to Charles's flag. Emma sifted through them, her vision enhanced by peacekeeper tech. Zoomed in to the micro level. She quite liked that ability. But if she stayed with the Tokyo police, they might make her give that up too. She could visit a mod shop, but it wouldn't be the same. Nishimura's head flickered across her sleeve, and Emma shook her ear clear of Charles's voice for a moment. Any news? Nishimura asked. The media has hold of a witness who says they saw a drone. Emma chewed her lip. She didn't want to say it wasn't a drone. That had been her whole reason for slipping the case out of Yamada's fingers. But she couldn't say it was a drone either. We know it wasn't a registered drone. Something off the books, probably. I can't give the press liaison that pile of steaming. It's what we've got. Listen, Emma. If Yamada can close this case, we should give it to him. Emma narrowed her eyes. Nope. The man was trying a bit too hard to get her moved off the case. Was he trying to move her further than that? Possibly off Japanese territory? Why? She'd closed plenty of cases... It couldn't be that. What didn't he want her to find out? Give us a few more days, she finally said. Come on, Nishimura-san. You owe Miyako and me at least that for closing the kidnapping case. Nishimura coughed, then finally said, All right, two more days. Emma closed the link just in time to see Miyako slipping her information to the woman behind the door. Her partner walked the short distance down the hallway and pulled out her seal. The crime scene tape parted and hung down like long flags. Together, Miyako and Emma opened the apartment and stepped into the crime scene. The broken window had already been patched with plastic, 
Miyako breathed through her mouth and then coughed at the tinge of ash still in the air. There was one relatively unscorched spot on the apartment floor, in the shape of a curled human form. The body was gone, but the councilwoman's bright shadow remained. Miyako eyed the window, and then the floor again. Her sleeve and Emma's lit up at the same time. A file pushed from the data miner. News clippings about the councilwoman. Her marriage. Her election. Misato Nakagawa's face peered out from the clippings. Eyes sharp. Smile even. Though her clothing grew more severe. Necklines higher. As she aged. After a few years, there was little in the news about her but plenty about the campaigns she was supporting, the votes she'd advocated for. The woman had excelled at her job. This is good. Miyako texted the data miner in thanks. Anything else? Only a controversy I remember, about an award she won for service. Someone wrote the Shimbun anonymously every week for about a month, saying she was growing too big for her shoes. Did anyone ever find out who that was? Emma said. The data miner replied quickly. Not by my recollection. Let us know when you have more, Miyako said. And thank you, Tanaka-san. They moved carefully through the apartment. Photos had escaped destruction on one wall, near the bedroom. The young boy, beaming in his school uniform, his smile locked bright as a camera flash, and several candids with the older woman, his grandmother. None of Councilwoman Nakagawa. Miyako narrowed her eyes and walked through the child's bedroom, her feet crackling slowly over the ash-dusted floor. The smell wasn't as bad in here. Few photos in the room. That wasn't too unusual. The boy was young, and his room was decorated with airplanes, but Miyako saw no photos of the boy's mother, anywhere in the room or the apartment. That was odd. She was about to go into the master bedroom, leaving Emma standing by the window looking at the drone-sized break in it, when her sleeve buzzed. It was the neighbor, Councilwoman Nakagawa's mother-in-law. Yes, Miyako said. It was growing late. They'd been in the apartment for a long time. The older woman's voice sounded friendlier than it had in the hallway. Inspector Koreda-san, I shouldn't gossip, but you said to tell you anything. I did, and I would like you to, very much. Would you meet me in the hallway? I'm making udon for my grandson. I can talk like this while he naps. Miyako frowned thinking of the young boy's eyes, begging her to solve the case. Thinking of the bright shadow on the smoke-darkened floor. Go ahead. I thought I should tell you that I heard Nakagawa-san yelling all the time on the phone through the apartment walls. She was always fighting with someone. She was in politics, Miyako thought, in divided Tokyo. Of course she was fighting. Miyako pried. Did you hear anything specific? 
Yes, said the grandmother. I heard her yell more than once about foreign mischief and also about child care. She was never any good at the child care. I have to go. Miyako winced at the older woman's sharp tone at the end, but made a note. I have to go, the grandmother repeated. The boy should be waking up soon. He needs to keep his strength. And then she closed the connection. Foreign mischief, Miyako said to Emma. We need to go to the diet. Meantime, do you want to ask Kensuke if he's heard anything about foreign intervention? Maybe through the gangs? You ask him, Emma said with a grin. I'm busy. Trouble? Miyako asked quietly. No, just tired of talking to him. It's so often all about Kensuke. He'll give you the data we need without a lot of extra showmanship, right? Miyako nodded. Usually. Then you ask. I'll keep trying to track the councilman. With the memorial service at the diet, hopefully we'll find them there, too. Act Two The gravel expanse at the front of the diet, flanked by two small strips of green beside the concrete and granite building, was filled with tourists and politicians in equal measure. It was a warm spring day, and the sun focused particularly on the men and women coming for the memorial service, wearing black suits and dresses. Several carried photographs of Councillor Nakagawa, and a few held small envelopes. A fund for the family has been established on their neighborhood network, but Miyako gestured to the envelopes. Tradition. Emma nodded. Everything to help the family. Yes, especially with the father out of work. They need all the help they can get. Where did you learn that? Emma hadn't heard the grandmother say anything about her son's job status. She'd said plenty about her daughter-in-law's. He's listed as actively seeking on BizReach 2, Miyako said. I looked him up. He was an advertising account executive before the war. Hasn't worked since. But I saw his briefcase still by the door when we arrived this morning. Emma looked confused. My guess is that's to keep his mother unawares. Emma frowned. That poor family. They would not attend this memorial as they'd retrieved the counselor's body from Sato's office and were tending to the cremation in private. Civic mourners, most of whom had worked with Nakagawa in some fashion, climbed the diet's front stairs, entered the main hall, then made their way to the renovated central porch. Here, beside the marble stairs and granite walls, the lights were softer, and everything felt much cooler. Security drones pushed back two small newsbot swarms, and a guard strong-armed another reporter away from the room. Near the far wall, a black-draped table held Misato Nakagawa's photograph in a large silver frame. Incense burned in a cerulean ceramic plate beside the photo, and as mourners passed, they took a dab of incense powder and sprinkled it over the flame on the plate. Standing at a respectful distance, Miyako waited with Emma until mourners began exiting again. 
a woman in a dark gray suit came past, brushing at her eyes. Miyako greeted her, bowing her head slightly. The woman nodded. She was one of the greats, she finally said. Other mourners reacted similarly. Nakagawa's strength and perseverance was universally praised. No one had anything bad to say about the counselor. Respect for the dead is going to impede our investigation, Emma said. It's more than that, Miyako pointed out. The vote to elevate foreign financial mischief to treason is still going to happen, as is the opposition vote. The House of Counselors is gathering support. But around whom? Where are the two councilmen? Miyako scanned the room and Emma did too. There. Miyako saw them first, wearing dark shirts under dark jackets. They kept to the edge of the crowd still entering the main porch and passing by Nakagawa's memorial table. Emma moved to flank the men, whom people were starting to notice. A murmur rippled through the crowd. Shinobe startled and tried to bolt for the stairs, but Emma caught his elbow. Unhand me! Do you know who I am? Shinobe's face was livid. Let's keep this sedate and orderly, shall we? Emma guided Shinobe toward a side door and down to the waiting car. Shinobe's well-known pugilistic demeanor was replaced with a shaken look, and his suit sleeve was crumpled by Emma's firm grip when he slid into the self-belting seat. Miyako followed with Miyake soon after. They escorted the two counselors back to the precinct in silence. Well, Emma and Miyako were silent, and led them to separate interrogation rooms. Emma approached Yamada in the break room. I would be grateful if you would help with the interrogation, she said as she rinsed a mug. You are the best at this. Everyone says so. She hoped the request would soothe the inspector's ire. But she didn't let herself expect any good reaction from the older man. She was surprised when his ever-present frown relaxed into a smile. I would be glad to assist, Yamada said, and then began rolling up his sleeves. Miyako began to follow Emma and Yamada, but stopped by Kensuke's desk. The inspector was not there. As she turned toward the interrogation room, data miner Sasaki beckoned to her. The woman's crisp white blouse and gray slacks blending in with the office cubicles all around them. The data miner's hair was in a neat, graying bun, and her office clothes were more staid than even Miyako's, but a small set of bracelets jingled merrily as they slid down her arm when she waved. I thought you might not want the whole department involved just yet, she said. She tapped Miyako's sleeve with her own, and they opened the file they now shared. Noise complaints, going back more than a decade, from apartment neighbors. They ended two years ago. The councilwoman and her husband bought the other apartment on the floor and moved his mother into it. Problem solved. But the problems weren't solved? The data miner shook her head. I found a hospital report for stitches, and remember when the councilwoman broke her wrist skiing? She wasn't anywhere near a mountain that weekend. 
Miyako's eyes widened. Emma came to join them. Yamada's getting nowhere with the councilman. They swear they had no real grievance with her. They each have alibis for the night the apartment burned. She paused and looked at her companions. What? Not certain yet. Miyako remembered the little boy's eyes. He'd clung so tightly to his father. What had happened in that apartment? Behind them, Sato cleared his throat. Can I show you something? The team turned toward the nearest data wall, and Sato displayed three photographs. One was of the apartment window, blackened with smoke and broken. Sato zoomed into the image, turning it slightly so they could see the angle of the broken glass. It slanted out. The window was punched out, not in. He moved to the next image, a chemical graph. This is a normal inhalation graph of death from smoke. He pointed to a blue line. This is the inhalation graph for the councilwoman. She died at 12% oxygen. The red line Sato pointed to was much higher than the blue line. The fire didn't kill the councilwoman. It was initially hard to tell since there was so much tissue damage. What is going on? Emma said. Are you saying that the drone came from inside the apartment? That the scene of the councilwoman's death was rigged? Sato shrugged. I don't know yet. It is certainly a possibility. From the interrogation room, Miyako heard shouting. Then a door slammed open and the counselors walked out, followed by Yamada, looking sheepish. When both council members had swept out of the station, after a long, closed-door discussion with Nishimura, Yamada came up to Emma, walking very quickly. Are you trying to ruin my career, Higashi? Emma looked confused. Not at all. From the corner of her eye, she saw the PR liaison enter Nishimura's office. Things were getting worse. First you take my case, then you flatter me into taking a damaging go-nowhere interrogation. I'd say you were. Yamada's big frame blocked Emma from seeing Nishimura's office, but she heard the door open again. Higashi! Koreda! By the time the chief was finished summoning them, Nishimura's voice had silenced the station's normal conversational rumble. As Emma and Miyako stepped into Nishimura's office, the conversation picked up again, accelerating into a buzz. Nishimura's desk was organized the way a windstorm might store paperwork. A spray of pens covered one side of it. A pile of three broken station-issued data sleeves teetered on the other. And at the center of the maelstrom, Nishimura sat still, staring at Emma for a long minute, and then at Miyako. What is going on? The PR liaison here is shouting that I've disrespected the diet by giving inexperienced investigators a case of such high profile. The media is frothing. Have you messed this case up? Inexperienced, Miyako muttered. What is he talking about? 
Emma tasted an old, sour anger in the back of her throat. She'd seen this sometimes in the military, where inexperienced sometimes meant female. She stared at the young PR liaison until he flinched. Nishimura didn't seem to have heard Miyako. He steepled his fingertips for a moment and leaned back in his chair. This is a complex case. I will keep a closer eye on the work being done on it. The liaison sniffed. His seat creaked as he rose and began to leave the room. I think we are close to cracking the case, Miyako said, speaking quickly. Some things are still nebulous, Emma added, a little grumpily. Yeah, we haven't been able to speak to Kensuke regarding a few questions. Getting him to talk about anything was proving increasingly difficult, Emma thought. With a grim look on his face, the liaison nodded. I'll let people know. He shut the door behind himself and walked away quickly. Nishimura turned to them, newly intent. Kensuke is working a stakeout for a few days. You need answers about Kensuke's cases. Yamada is a friend of his. He might be your best bet, but I don't think you're going to be getting answers fast from that quarter. Nishimura-san, I- Emma said. Nishimura raised his hand. Just fix it. Solve the case and fix the rest, and then you can go back where you came from. He stood up. They were excused. Outside the office, Emma wished she could melt into the floor. What happened? Sato whispered. Friendly fire incident, Emma replied. I'll fix it. And a heavy dose of inexperience. Miyako remained quiet. Emma chewed her lip. In this instance, her approach to both the young PR liaison and keeping control of the case was very different from her partner's. Miyako navigated the station quietly, without making waves. After today, she was thinking seriously about shifting her own approach. Once Sato left, she turned to Miyako to say so. But Miyako was already frowning. My career is not a friendly fire incident, Emma. The former fourth-place judo Olympian waited a moment for her partner to respond. While Emma struggled for the right words, Miyako turned and walked back to her desk, still frowning. Emma ground her teeth. She'd been feeling a little less awkward at the station until today. She'd felt the same camaraderie she'd had with the peacekeepers. But today she'd gotten anything but. And not just with Miyako. With Yamada, the PR liaison, Nishimura, everyone. Even Kensuke. She hadn't known he was on a stakeout when they'd met up the night before. She thought he'd just wanted to show her a little bit more of Tokyo. He'd invited her to a butterfly bar a few minutes from Shibuya Station. When she'd arrived, she'd walked through a thickly layered cocoon and emerged in a forest of green lights and branches draped over tables. Real butterflies fluttered everywhere, landing on flowers, dancing around the lights. 
the effect was dizzying. Magical. Kensuke had taken a booth at the back. He'd ordered an akashitai, which was still chilled, and chocolates. He hadn't been waiting too long. A small bowl containing clear liquid sat at the center of the table. What's that for? She asked as she slid into the booth. Here, I'll show you. Kensuke dipped a fingertip in the liquid and brushed her ear. Emma shivered. Why did you do that? Wait for a moment, he said. He dipped his finger again and drew a circle on the back of his hand. A pale green butterfly landed on the circle. Then two hovered at Emma's ear. They tickled. It's nectar. Sugar water. See? He chuckled as Emma watched, amazed, then passed her a glass of sake. What's this all for? Emma asked. She was still feeling frustrated over her case, and not all that up for whimsy. I thought you'd like it. Kensuke frowned. I do. I'm just distracted. A difficult case. Emma wanted to ask him some questions, but Kensuke closed his eyes and waved his hand. Don't worry about all that right now. More butterflies had converged around Emma's ear. Blue with black stripes, yellow with brown and white spots. She waved them away. I can't help it. This case is important. Kensuke picked up a piece of chocolate and peeled the wrapper away. You say that about every case, Emma. He put the sweet between his teeth and bit down. You should try this with the sake. Every case is important, Emma said. To the victims and to their families especially. How could he not understand that? But you're off duty now, he said, and passed her one of the candies. She didn't unwrap it. I can be off duty once I've figured out what happened to the councilwoman. And that was when Kensuke shrugged. Actually shrugged. The butterflies that had hovered around him seemed to rise and then fall back across his hands. Show a little respect for the councilwoman, how about? Emma said very carefully. She felt frustration building, far more than the current conversation merited. She realized she'd been growing more annoyed with his shrugs and waving away her ambitions for a while now. Or for me and my career. It was hard to seethe with butterflies circling her head. But Emma had managed. Kensuke chuckled. Of course, at work. But here? If you can't treat me with professional respect, at all times, especially about my own cases, she started to say. He put a hand up and looked genuinely confused. I do treat you with respect. I was kidding. My work is important to me, she said. But when Kensuke tipped his cup to his lips and didn't say anything further, she added, Much more than a fling is. You can have both, he said. Not the way you're acting, she said. And that was it, as far as she was concerned. 
she'd had enough. I think we're done. Or I am, at least. She stood up, butterflies scattering, and walked back through the fake forest and the man-made cocoon and out onto the very real Tokyo street. She hadn't realized until she got home that a single yellow butterfly was tangled in her hair. She freed it, and it had flapped, alone, around her apartment for hours that night, then finally disappeared. Now, in the office, Emma imagined Kensuke surveying the mess she'd made, and then looking at her, his eyes dancing as if to say, How's that career going now that you've infuriated your partner again? Emma sighed. She'd fix this, Emma thought. After. After she fixed everything else. And after they'd found the councilwoman's killer. Act Three. Emma placed three pieces of caramel-filled Chiroru and Miyako's favorite mug. The teal-blue unicorns are more than weaponized ponies one, filled with a fresh cup of tea on her partner's desk. I'm sorry I messed everything up. You just decide to do things and then do them, Miyako said as she lifted the mug and inhaled the scent of the tea. Yes, we should have the case. But you pressured the superintendent. You didn't think about the consequences. I'm a sniper, Miyako. We can't do that. We just have to do our jobs. And we're the best people for the case. Maybe you should change your job description. Your actions cause ripples you have to work within. You're not a sniper anymore. Emma blinked. It was true. She was very used to taking lead on a team. And Miyako was used to working alone, too. It took some getting used to. She hoped they had time to smooth out the rough edges. She opened one of the caramel chocolate squares and took a small bite. Miyako did the same. I like the peanut butter ones better, she said as she chewed. These are pretty good, Emma replied. I don't want them to recall me, Miyako. I like this job. This precinct. But it doesn't seem to like me very much right now. You just shake everything up. No one's used to that. Miyako smiled. But sometimes it works out. Emma closed her eyes in frustration. Just for a moment. She had been quietly trying to run down the tip that Santiago had given her earlier. But so far she'd run into nothing but walls. Any word from Liu about the weapon smuggling yet? Emma asked casually, mostly to shift the subject, but also because losing track of a second shipment of guns coming into Tokyo's port was not good. Not at all. She'd enlisted Miyako's help and Miyako had made the surprising but actually really smart suggestion to call the obnoxious Chinese detectives they'd been forced to work with on the kidnapping case. Not yet, Miyako said. You'll be the first to know. When Miyako's sleeve buzzed next, she slid it off her arm and spread it on her desk so Emma could see too. 
an off-the-shelf icon of an older woman popped up, and Counselor Nakagawa's mother-in-law spoke. Her voice was panicked. I've been letting my family stay with me, and they are receiving threats. One just appeared in our apartment. You must help us. The Diet's own security will do nothing. When my daughter-in-law was alive, they would have helped, but no longer. They had their jackets on immediately, Miyako pocketing the last of the Chiroru, and were out the door at top speed. Miyako called for a station car, but it was out, so they had to take the train. By the time they arrived at the apartment building, the news drones that had lingered around the apartment like a cloud had tripled in size. Drones buzzed, bumping the two officers aggressively, until Emma waved them away. Let us pass. When the elevator door opened, the mother-in-law was standing in the hallway, waiting. She held her grandson, her hands gripping the child's chunky calves and denting them. The investigators went into the apartment and followed the old woman's pointing finger to the window, where a cream-colored piece of paper printed in 22-point kanji hung on the outside. It had only one word. Treason. The paper fluttered in the cool spring breeze. Outside, the drones buzzed, too low to see the paper. How did that get up there? Emma went to the nearest window and stuck her hand outside. The paper was just out of her reach, and she doubted anyone else could get it either. Miyako, can you request the drone flight record? Emma said, though she doubted there would be anything. There's nothing, Miyako responded. The data miner pulled it up as we were heading to the train. The toddler squirmed and shrieked in his grandmother's arms again. Emma remembered that he'd been holding something the night of the fire. A toy. A colorful plastic controller. Like for a drone. Do you have the boy's toy? She asked the grandmother. The old woman put the boy down and went to her guest room to look at what she'd rescued from her son and daughter-in-law's apartment. She returned empty-handed. Not there, she said. But the boy had crawled beneath the sofa in his grandmother's apartment and tugged a child's drone loose from the dust bunnies beneath the furniture. Wobbling a bit, he took the toy to Miyako, then backed away into his grandmother's arms. The drone's grabbers had something sticky on them. We'll take this back to the station, and we should take you too, for your protection, Emma told the woman. You're taking my son nowhere, said the boy's father from the doorway. Nakagawa-san, we have evidence that your wife sustained several injuries over the years that you've never explained, Emma said, turning to the door. Would you like to tell us what happened the other night? The councilwoman's husband's eyes filled with tears. We fought often, but not on that night. On that night, she finally said she was leaving. His mother shifted her grandson to one arm so that she could grab her son's arm. Hard. Think about what you are doing. Nakagawa rested himself free and glared at his mother. The young boy at her side continued to squirm and cry, 
but she only held him tighter. Then she turned to the inspectors, her face a mask of anger. She was a terrible wife, a terrible mother. She made my son feel less than worthy. She made him feel small, said the grandmother as she rocked her grandson on her hip. No man should feel small. As the elderly woman swung her grandson from side to side, Miyako pointed to her chin. There was a fresh bruise darkening on the woman's face. Did he hit you too? The woman looked at her son for a long time before looking back down at her grandson. Her voice was barely a whisper. He hits everyone. He tried to slip out of the apartment, but Miyako kicked the door shut, then twisted his arm behind his back. The man resisted. In my own home, I should be listened to, he began. Miyako interrupted him. We are arresting you for the murder of your wife, and also for acts intended to cover up your crime that risked destabilizing the country. And improper, unannounced use of a drone, Emma said. Honestly, if she could find several more serious charges to drop on the man, she would. We will be happy to listen to your confession. The press liaison left the superintendent's office looking relieved, a fat data file lighting up his sleeve as it downloaded. The media will still have many questions, he said as he passed Emma's desk. Miyako readied herself for another American-style, friendly fire incident. But instead, her partner raised a mug of tea in the liaison's direction. You'll handle them. Miyako thought she saw a glimmer of a smile cross the liaison's face. I will. She turned back to her sleeve, waiting for the open cases board to update and the Nakagawa case to shift to closed, with her name beside it. The case might have meant a promotion for Yamada. What could it mean for her? For Emma? By the stairs, a small commotion caught her attention as Kensuke nearly bumped into the young press liaison. For the first time Miyako could remember, Kensuke looked rumpled, with bags under his eyes like he hadn't slept in days. Still, the inspector grinned at Emma, his perfect teeth catching the light. Miyako made a sound that was half snort, half groan. Don't worry, Emma said, leaning toward her. I ended things. Thanks for the warnings. But as her partner's brow wrinkled, Miyako caught herself wondering how that had gone. Before she could ask... Yamada pulled Kensuke into Nishimura's office and shut the door loudly. Miyako spread her sleeve on her desk and activated a tall spreadsheet at 60% transparency so that she could watch the men inside while seeming to study drone transit data. Emma quietly got up to take a call. Yamada gestured to Emma's desk, then at Kensuke, then at Nishimura. He's still mad? Emma said, returning and catching sight of the scene. Miyako didn't want to tell Emma just how long Yamada could hold a grudge. I expect Nishimura will put him up for a promotion soon anyway, 
and then everything will go back to normal. Again, that strange flicker of worry across Emma's face. What is it? Miyako asked. Sometimes she felt like she could read her partner, but other times she still couldn't guess what the American was thinking. Emma put her tea down. I've been trying too hard to make friends, maybe. Miyako looked harder at the data. Americans always overthought things. In Nishimura's office, Yamada was getting up, but Kensuke stayed where he was. Why do you say that? Yamada. I asked him to take the interview because I really do respect him, and I'd really like us to get along better. That kind of blew up in my face. There was really nothing to add to that. Miyako tried to shrug supportively. Emma raised her mug in agreement. Exactly. That call? I'm going to stay here. For now. Peacekeepers aren't reclaiming me yet. For all that Emma could drive her crazy, Miyako felt a moment of relief. Had she actually grown to like working with the American? Huh. She put a piece of candy on her partner's desk and went back to work. At the diet the next day, the media swarmed. Several Real News hosts stood on the stairs in lieu of just sending their drone counterparts. The whole area buzzed. Drones filmed each word, each gesture. One announcer declared, Many are wondering why Councilwoman Nakagawa, a powerful politician, didn't say anything during many years of domestic violence. I wonder too, what would have been done if she had? Another, peeking with his camera inside the diet's main hall to look at the empty chairs, said, Today, in a historic vote, a new measure in Nakagawa's memory was put before the diet, and passed, calling for safe harbor sites for domestic violence. Additionally, it looks like the foreign mischief vote that Nakagawa also backed will soon pass the house as well. Within a news cycle, many would move on to the next outrage, the next pressing item. But the day Nakagawa's foreign mischief vote passed, for a moment, the media commentators fell silent. The members of the Diet did too some even bowing their heads, remembering her. So that was episode seven of Ninth Step Murders, and I feel like that was a really well-measured, well-connected, thematically consistent, uh, dynamic, and kind of sad episode. I really appreciate how the writers found all of these different ways to explore how a misogyny holds uh, women back and harms women in all these different arenas, right? Whether it's Councilwoman Nakagawa and her, you know, being derided by her colleagues at work, even though she's trying to do good things for the country. Um, and also with, with Emma and Miyako about how, I mean, Emma's, you know, relationship with Kensuke, we are starting to see his true colors there, of course, right, too. But also how they're referred to as inexperienced, simply because they're women. While they're 
start trying to figure out and do get to the bottom of this um, kind of gruesome murder, um, the entire thing treats all of that with a real, I think, sensitivity and also explores really important themes alongside the plot of the episode and the series as well, too. So well done across the board. Also, incidentally, the term foreign mischief, I think, is a great band name, and I'll be using it out of context as much as possible in the near future. Anyway, episode eight of Nine Step Murders is coming at you very soon. My name is Neil Helligers. I'm your host. I will be your host for when that episode comes at you, and uh, I will see you there. So until then, take care. You're listening to Adrenaline, Ninth Step Murders. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ninth Step Murders is written by Malka Older, Curtis C. Chen, Jacqueline Koyanagi, and Fran Wilde. It is executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Starring Emily Wu Zeller. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Asadulahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Hellikers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Begala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.